certainly appreciate what Brother Neil has brought to our attention. Um, <clears throat> life requires balance, and it's so easy to get off balance. The great struggle, really, of life is remaining balanced and um, having moderation. And the Apostle Paul said, let your moderation be known to all men because the Lord is at hand. And so, as Brother Neil has pointed out, it's not wrong to work. In fact, the church at Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul rebuked them because they had become disorderly, because they thought the Lord Jesus was coming back any moment, so they quit their jobs. Well, Jesus had already said, occupy till I come. So you and I are to be busy doing what we're commanded to do until the moment that Jesus comes back. Uh, not a week before, a year before, or because we don't know when the Lord is going to come back, so occupy it till he come. And we often do get worried about the future, do we not? And if we're all honest with ourselves, how much of us are concerned about, as Brother Neil pointed out, our retirement account? Is that going to be sufficient? Am I hedged enough against inflation? Am I where I need to be? The financial advisor says I need this, but what happens if five years before retirement there's a massive crash on Wall Street? Well, you can do what you can do, and then the rest you commend to God and trust that he will take care of our needs. Like Brother Neil, I have many swords. Uh, the last thing I want to do is to ever have to employ the swords that I have. I will, but I don't want to. And so I want to live in such a way in the natural realm where I'm not employed, but also here in the house of God that I would be careful uh, not to employ that. I'd like to turn your attention this morning back to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19. I wish Brother Neil had been here one more week ahead because what he spoke on fits so much with David's life in the coming chapters. Uh, but we'll just try to keep what he said in mind as we get to those spots next week, God willing. I want to look briefly this morning at both chapter 19 and chapter 20. These two chapters coincide and are going to greatly change David's life. We find in chapter 18, of course, Saul's hatred for David is kindled. He cannot stand the fact that the women are singing that David is, or Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. Remember, they sang both to acclaim and give honor to David and Saul. They didn't say David slain his thousand, uh, uh, Saul slain his thousands, but David. They just said and. But Saul twisted their song. Saul said, they have saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David is ten thousand. It is Saul that twisted the words of that hymn. Now again, the women should have been more careful. They could have been more mindful of what they said, but their intent was not to take glory away from Saul. If you read their words and then you read how Saul interpreted it, I believe it is clear that Saul was the one who was in the wrong. And so in chapter 18, we find that Saul uh, will uh, twice throw a javelin at David. When that doesn't work, we find that he makes him a captain uh, and sends him out to war and hope that in the front of the battle, in the heat of the battle, he'll be slain by the Philistines. That doesn't work. So he promises his older, oldest daughter and they'll be married, but then he takes the daughter away right at the time of marriage, which was a great insult in that day. 
Well, just imagine if you were a groom at the altar today and all of a sudden your bride didn't show up because her family intervened. Uh, Well, that's what's happened to David. He's basically at the altar and his bride doesn't show up. Well, Saul is doing that in hopes that David's wrath will be kindled against Saul so that David will react against Saul. David behaved himself wisely. And if you'll recall, it says twice that David, uh, Saul feared David. The first reason is because he saw the Lord was with him. And then he uh, uh, despised uh, David and feared David because he behaved himself wisely. He saw that he had a foe, in his mind a foe, who had the Lord with him and also had wisdom on his side. And as I preached last week, those are two uh, mighty tools in the arsenal of God's children to have with you the Lord on your side and also biblical, godly, heavenly wisdom to be able to discern and to behave yourself wisely in this world as Satan makes his attacks. Then we find that he learns that his daughter McCall loves David, so he says, I'll give him her so she can be a snare unto him. And then to be married to her, he first has to slay a hundred Philistines, but instead he slays 200. Chapter 19, we find it says, now Saul is going to change tactics. Saul has been secretly doing things to David. Uh, Jonathan was not in the room when the javelins were thrown. Uh, David, when he's going to put him as a captain, he does it under the guise of honoring David. When he takes the daughter away, you know, maybe he gives the excuse, it's not the right time, they're not the right fit. All that he's doing so far is done under the cover of darkness. And Satan will use the cover of darkness against you. But there are going to be times that Satan may also come right at you, right in the open, and he doesn't care whether it's covered up by darkness. And that's what happens in chapter 19. In chapter 19, we find it says, Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. In other words, Saul has been unsuccessful, so he is going to enlist more people in his army against David. Uh, He has tried several tactics thus far. Every one of them has failed. You know why they have failed? Two reasons. The Lord is with David, and David behaves himself wisely. And because of those two things, David has escaped every attempt that Saul has made. And so Saul, being so frustrated but still so angry at David, now he commands his son Jonathan and all his servants to kill David. Now imagine if you're Jonathan. What did we read in the first portion of the chapter just before? It came to pass when he had made an end of speaking David unto Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, we're going to find, as we read there a few weeks ago, that we, uh, Jonathan gives him his sword. He even gives him his uh, princely robes. You know what Jonathan recognized in chapter 18? He recognized that David is going to be my king. And so he went ahead and laid aside his uh, princely garments, knowing that he would never uh, sit upon the throne of the nation of Israel. And he was not angry about that. He uh, respected the authority of God uh, to give the kingdom to another. And yet, uh, and even as he sees the man to whom the kingdom will be given, he sees this as a man of honor, a man of integrity, a man of courage, a man of valor, a man to be loved. And so when he hears uh, David speak, his uh, soul is knit to the soul of David. He loves him, it says, as his own soul, meaning he loved him like he loved his very own life. And now his father, who is king, 
Now, Ecclesiastes, Solomon would say, who would be the second king after Saul, where the word of a king is, there is power. That's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Where the word of a king is, there is power. That means there's authority. So when a king speaks, what does that mean? It has full royal authority over the land over which he reigns. So when King Saul says to Jonathan and to his servants, you are to kill David, that's not a suggestion. That is the rule of the sovereign of that land. He has just passed basically a law that David is an enemy of the state of Israel and he's to be put to death. What do you do if you're Jonathan? You love this man as you love your own life. Uh, you've seen that this man has uh, fought valiantly for Israel. You watched for 40 days as Goliath came out and tempted the armies of Israel. And everybody there on that hillside uh, stood in fear as Goliath uh, taunted the armies of Israel. David comes on the scene, a 17-year-old boy. And when he hears that uh, uncircumcised Philistine, what does he say? He says, is there not a cause? He recognized that that man uh, was defying the armies of the living God. He saw it as a spiritual battle more so than a natural battle. And he recognized that God was on their side and God would deliver that man into his hand. And thus God did. God delivered the, uh, the giant into the hand of David that day. And a great victory was wrought in Israel. And Jonathan remembers that. Saul has conveniently forgotten it. Put it out of mind. He doesn't care anymore. You know, there's some folks in this world, it's not what you've done for them in the past. What are you doing for them right now? And God forbid we would ever be that way. We ought to remember the blessings that people have been in the past days of our lives. And not uh, be upset, um, unrighteously so, or expect of people all the time things they've provided you in the past. You know, in politics, that's one of the sayings. It's not what you did for me then. It's what can you do for me now? I guarantee you right now in Washington, D.C., there are people gathering together in various rooms and places, and they don't care about how senators or congressmen or aides have supported them in the past. They want to know, how are you going to help me in what I want at this present moment? Well, that's exactly where uh, Saul, he doesn't care what David has done in the past. He hates him, and he wants him dead. So here's Jonathan the friend of David, a man that loves David like he loves his own life. What do you do? Your father's the king. Uh, Exodus 20, honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the earth. So here his father is speaking, but also his king is speaking. So when you read Exodus 20, and you know God has said, honor your father that your days may be long upon the earth. And the Bible also says we're to honor the king through the words of the apostle Paul. And also the Apostle Peter. We're to submit to those who have rule and authority over us, according to Romans chapter 13. So all of a sudden we find that Jonathan is in conflict. My father is speaking, I'm to honor him. The king is speaking, I'm supposed to honor him. But I also love David. And David is honoring God. So what do I do? You know what David, uh, Jonathan does? He does exactly what the church did through Peter and John in Acts chapter 5. It hadn't been written yet. But the principle applies. When finally they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's exactly what Jonathan believes. 
He recognizes, yes, I'm supposed to honor my father. Yes, I'm supposed to honor the king. But when the king or my father is in opposition to the will of God, I have got to separate myself from what he's trying to do. It doesn't mean that he would uh, cut ties with his father permanently. He does not. In fact, he will be with his father all the way to the very end. They both will die in the very same war. But notice what he does. Jonathan could have said, you know what? I love David, but this is just not my business. I'm, I, I can't help him now. He, he's, I've got to just trust that God will. Jonathan could have taken that approach. God will take care of him. I believe that God is sovereign. God is able. God will have a way. God will take care of it. But you know, sometimes how God is going to take care of a situation, it may be through you. And so Jonathan recognizes that. He doesn't just say, well, God will take care of it. Yes, he believed God would take care of David. But at this moment, he believed he was the instrument by which God would take care of David. And so notice what he does. It says, Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father, seeketh to kill thee. Now, therefore, I pray thee, take heed to thyself unto the morning and abide in a secret place and hide thyself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where thou art. And I will commune with my father of thee. And what I see, that I will tell thee. So he goes to David. He says, here's what's going on, David. He was honest with him. He said, your life is in danger. My father wants to kill you. I see it now. I recognize that his hatred is real, and he really wants to destroy your life. I see that, so I want you to hide in a field. Uh, you need to get into a safe place, and I'm going to take my father out, one, uh, just one-on-one, one one, and I'm going to speak with him, and I'm going to try to advocate and be an intercessor on your behalf. So Jonathan could have just said nothing and said, God will take care of him, or he could have just told David, David, you've got to get out of here, and said, well, I saved his life. But he goes further than that. He defends David. So he warns David, and then he will defend David. Notice what a true friend this man is. Again, he could have just said, well, God, you just take care of him. Then he could have said, well, I've warned him. It's on him now to figure out how to get around all of this. He doesn't stop there. He recognized, I'm the king's son. Perhaps the king will hearken to me. And so it says, Jonathan spake good of David unto Saul, his father. Notice that. Jonathan spake good. Well, there was nothing but good to speak. I mean, what had David done that was wrong? I mean, here he's fought Goliath and slain him. When he's made a captain, he went out and fought valiantly. When his uh, uh, wife-to-be was taken from him, what does he do? He still honors the king. When the king says, okay, I'll give him a call, what does he do? He goes and slays more than what Saul requires. There's no reason right now to speak anything but good of David unto Saul, but still it was a dangerous place to be in in this moment, to come before Saul, knowing Saul hates this man, and to speak good. He says, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he hath not sinned against thee, and because his works have been to thee word very good. For he did put his life in his hand and slew the Philistine, and the Lord wrought a great salvation for all Israel. Thou sawest it, and didst rejoice. Wherefore, why then wilt thou sin against innocent blood to slay David without a cause? And notice verse 6. And Saul hearkened unto the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swear. Saul makes an oath. He says, as the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. Now Saul makes an oath here, not recognizing how much God is going to live up to the oath that is made in his name. Again, Saul says, as the Lord liveth. That means as long as God lives, 
then David will not be slain. David will not be murdered. David will not be killed by my hand. You know what? That promise comes to fruition. David will never be slain. David will die in a good old age. Saul will die in battle. Saul will be slain. Saul will go out in infamy, but also in disgrace. But David will be established by God. So here Saul says, in response to Jonathan, his heart is pricked, obviously. Now, it really doesn't, well, it does matter to Saul, but whether or not he's a child of God, it's hard for us to really know, but I I believe personally that he is. I believe that Saul uh, presented qualities in his life that indicate that he was a regenerated child of God who had become disobedient to what God commanded, and God simply withdrew his presence from him. And because of that, he made horrible decisions in the rest. And we see that in a lot of God's elect here in this world. Uh, Where God has been with them, they display fruits of the Spirit, and then something happens in their life, and God withdraws his presence from them, and all of a sudden it's hard to tell them from the wicked of this world. Well, that's where Saul is. But here in this moment, he's touched. And so he makes this promise. As the Lord liveth, he shall not be slain. So David calls, uh, Jonathan calls David and showed him all those things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. So what David's brought back to the palace. And then it says, and there was war again. You know, that's just the reality for the child of God. There'll be a time of peace, and then there's going to be war again. Satan may depart for a season, but he's going to come back and bring war again. It's just going to happen, and we should not be surprised. When things are going well, that's when we ought to expect it. When a church is being blessed... When people are hearing the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and responding to that, when people are being baptized, when people are uh, committing their lives as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see the church rejoicing in the truth of the finished work of a sovereign Savior, we ought to expect that Satan hates that and he is going to look for a way in to attack a church in such a place. And he does that by attacking specific individuals within the body. So hopefully the poison uh, that he puts within them was spread within the church of God so there's war again that's true in our lives there's always going to be war again you don't have to go look for a fight it'll come on its own if you want one just sit back and wait it'll it'll happen a lot of God's people are aching for a fight you know, my father used to say when I would misbehave, he had a saying, he says, you're cruising for a bruising. I'm sure some of you all have heard that. There's some of God's people that are just that way. And there's times that I have been in that category when things are going well. And I let Satan use me to just go looking for a fight. Anyway, so there's war again. So what does David do? He goes out. He fights the Philistines. He slays them with a great slaughter, and they fled from him, and the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. So David is playing music again. Why? Because Saul is all stirred up. So here is David once again, being the sweet psalmist of Israel, who is playing music to soothe the spirit of this man. Remember what it says, though. He has a javelin in his hand. (laughs) Seems like he always had one of those handy. Notice what it says 
And Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence and he smote the javelin in the wall and David fled and escaped that night. You know what Saul lost? He lost David. He's got the javelin. It's still there. Uh, that weapon he's got, but the true weapon that was the great blessing to Israel has fled and escaped out of the, uh, out of the place that night. So here is David in the palace. He's uh, ministering to Saul uh, after he has gone out and fought great battles for Saul. And Saul, instead of thanking David for that, he takes that spear and throws it, tries to uh, pin him to the wall. David behaves himself wisely. The Lord is with him. And so he escapes out that night. And so here he's gone, but the javelin is left. But then he's not satisfied with that. Saul sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And recall David's wife told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. So somehow she knows about this. Either she's overheard it in the court, or maybe she just looks out and sees that these men are there to attack. But imagine being in David's place that night. That you know that when the morning light comes, there are men in hiding waiting to take your life. I mean, he told Jonathan and all of his servants, you're to kill David. Jonathan intervenes. He speaks to Saul on David's behalf and Saul relents and says, as the Lord liveth. He's already forgotten that, has he not? He takes the javelin, throws it at him. He's totally forgotten the promise that he made that as the Lord lives, uh, David shall not be slain. Well, God remembers the promise, whether uh, Saul remembered it or not. And, of course, David is uh, provided for. David escapes, comes to his house. Saul sends messengers there to lie in wait. Psalm 59 is written that night. One of the earliest psalms ever written, Psalm 59. Here's what David says. He says, deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity and save me from bloody men. He says, for lo, they lie and wait for my soul. The mighty are gathered against me, not for my transgression, nor for my sin, O Lord. He says, they run and prepare themselves without my fault. Awake to help me, and behold, thou therefore, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to visit all the heathen. Be not merciful to any wicked transgressors, Selah. He says, they return at evening. They make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. He says, Behold, they belch out with their mouth, swords are in their lips. For who, say they, doth hear? But thou, O Lord, shalt laugh at them. Thou shalt have the, all the heathen in derision. Because of his strength will I wait upon thee. For God is my defense. He says, The God of my mercy shall prevent me. That means go before me. God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Slay them not, lest my people forget. Otherwise, he says, scatter them by thy power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouth and the word of their lips, let them even be taken in their pride and for cursing and lying which they speak. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they be not. And let them know that God ruleth in Jacob under the ends of the earth. Selah. And at evening, let them return and let them make a noise like a dog and go round about the city. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they be not satisfied. But I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. For thou hast been my defense and refuge in the day of my trouble. Unto thee, O oh, my strength, will I sing. For God is my defense and the God of my mercy. Do you think you could have written that song when there were enemies laying outside waiting for you? But what better song could be written? Then to recognize that God is my defense 
God will put an end to these people. God will take care of them. But notice then what he goes on to say. He says, I will sing of thy power. Yea, I will sing aloud of thy mercy in the morning. <laughs> uh, here he is in the night. Watch as he says, the morning's coming. You know, the Bible would say through the pen of David that uh, uh, a weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. He says, in the morning I'll sing of his mercy. In other words, David had every confidence that he was going to escape uh, the wicked intent of these men. He was still placing his confidence squarely in God. He has uh, had the Lord walk with him. He has behaved himself wisely. And in this chapter, in the chapter to come, he is going to do so. He's going to recognize that God is his defender. Now going forward, he's going to make some major mistakes. He's going to start trusting the things he shouldn't trust. And it's going to bring him finally to the cave of Agilom. Where once again he has to rely on nothing but God. And realize it was, the, it was God all along. It was God that guided the stone into the forehead of the giant. It was God that helped him escape from the javelin three times. It was God with him when he was the captain out there. When Saul was trying to take his life. It was God with him to keep him from being angry with Saul. When Saul took his uh, bride away from him. It was God with him when he took the lives of 200 Philistines. It was God with him uh, when Jonathan spoke to Saul. And he changed his mind. It's God with him. When he goes out again when there's war, it's God with him when he comes into the house and plays for Saul. And Saul once again takes the javelin. And it's God with him when McCall says, you've got to get out of here. You've got to leave. And so if you remember, her name means increase. That was who he was supposed to marry. McCall, her name means like God. You know, the Lord in his providence knew exactly who David needed to marry. But you're going to find in this chapter she's not completely like God. Because after David leaves, she takes an image of an idol, lays it in the bed, takes goat's hair, you know, takes pillows. You know how kids do when they want to pretend like they're in the bed, but they're off doing something they shouldn't. Make it look like somebody's in the bed. That's what she does. So Saul calls for David. She says, well, he's sick. Well, that's a lie. Then we find that uh, Saul, he doesn't care if David's sick or not because he's, he's going to kill him. So whether he's healthy or sick, he doesn't care. So he says, you bring him up here to me in the bed. Now she knows she's caught. You know what she does now? She lies and says, well, he was going to kill me unless I let him go. Two lies she speaks. Neither were true. He wasn't sick in the bed, and he was never going to kill McCall. That would have not happened. So she lies, and we find that in this time, Saul will find that his daughter is not with him. You know where David will go when he flees? He goes to Ramah, to a place called Naroth, which means the residence of Samuel. He goes to the prophet. He goes to the man of God. What better place could he go right now? I mean, here he is. His life is in turmoil. He can't go to the palace. He can't go to his wife. He can't go to his brother-in-law. He can't go to the king. Obviously, he can cry out to God. He did so in Psalm 59. We have the record of his diary where he spoke to the Lord. But now here he comes down uh, to Samuel's house. Samuel's the one who anointed him king in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I have to wonder what all David had to say when he got there. I have to wonder, did David say, well, wait a minute, uh, Samuel. I didn't realize it was all going to unfold this way. <laughs> when you told me that I was going to be the next king, I thought it was going to be easier than this. I didn't recognize uh, what all was going on. I don't know what all David said, but God protected him there that day. Because there he is with Samuel and Ramah, and word comes to Saul. 
So you have Samuel and David there among the prophets, and the prophets are prophesying. They're worshiping together there. They're not telling about the future. They're all in the spirit of God. And so Saul sends messengers down there to destroy David. And you know what happens? Uh, God takes the messengers, and they begin to prophesy. And so then Saul sends a second set, and they prophesy. And then he sends a third set, and they prophesy. And finally Saul says, I've got to go myself. And you know what happens when Saul gets down there? The spirit of God comes upon Saul, and Saul begins to prophesy. You know what God just did there? He brings the spirit of worship into the enemies of David so they cannot slay David. Is that not amazing that God, has he not done that for you and for me from time to time? When our heart was angry at a brother and then all of a sudden we were together in worship. And all of a sudden that anger just quickly melted away and it uh, fled away and it was gone. Uh, God brought us into the house of worship and we all had the spirit of worship. And there that evil spirit uh, was out of the way for at least for a moment. That's what God does for David this time. He just brings his spirit down upon the uh, men that would slay David and on Saul himself. And so we find that Saul is able to escape. Chapter 20, David fled from Naoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What have I done? What is mine iniquity? And what is my sin before thy father that he seeketh my life? And he said to him, Jonathan replies, God forbid, thou shalt not die. Behold, my father will do nothing, either great or small, but that he will show it me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. David, no, you've got it wrong. I know my father, I understand he's not treated you right, but he would have told me this. Well, no, because he already recognizes that Jonathan loves David. So he's keeping secrets from Jonathan. And David swore moreover and said, Thy father certainly knoweth that I have found grace in thine eyes. And he said, Let not Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved, but truly as the Lord liveth. And as thy soul liveth, there is but a step between me and death. He said, Jonathan, I love you. But what you're not recognizing right now is your father knows how much you love me. And so he's not going to tell you these things. He's now keeping secrets from you because he knows that you love me as you love your own life. And so there's things that he's now hiding from you that before he never would have hidden from you. And so they devise a plan. They're going to, it's the time of the new moon, which the Old Testament required that in the beginning of months, new moons, there would be a feast. And they would gather together, they would eat. And so Jonathan and Saul, they speak together and here's the plan. David's going to be absent. He's going to be, he's going to go to Bethlehem for a very short stay. It's not very far to Bethlehem. So he's going to go to Bethlehem. And on the third day, he and Jonathan are going to meet. And on the first night or the second night, if Saul is enraged at the absence of David, they will know that David has fully fallen out of favor with Saul. The first night comes Saul recognizes David's not there, but says, well, he's probably unclean. So he needs to take a day. He'll be here tomorrow night. The next night comes. He's not there. And Jonathan tells him, well, he's in Bethlehem at his father's house. Well, this enrages Saul both against David and Jonathan. And all of a sudden, Saul has a javelin once again and takes it and throws it at Jonathan. And Jonathan escapes out of the way. But here's what they had said. They would meet together in a certain place in the field, and uh, Jonathan would fire three arrows. If they fell short of David, that meant that David was okay. He could come back to the palace. 
But if they went beyond David, then of course, he knew it was determined that Saul would try to his dying breath to take the life of David. So the day comes, and in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it says, verse 35, It came to pass in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David and a little lad with him. And he said unto his lad, Run, find out now the arrows which I shoot. And as the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the lad was come to the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond thee? That phrase is important. It's not the arrow beyond. This is beyond you. You know what it's really saying? He's saying to David, the anger of Saul is beyond you. That means it is beyond our ability to restrain. It's beyond our ability to control. Uh, it is beyond what we can handle. It is beyond what we can uh, settle down. It's beyond what we can repair. Uh, David, I love you very much, but the days of us having communion in the palace are over. That is in, that's a history that's beyond us now. Uh, uh, God forbid that that's the case, but that's exactly where we're at. Uh, it is beyond that time. We have enjoyed the days that we are going to enjoy. We've had the fellowship that we were going to have. It is over now. I still love you. I will be there for you the best that I can, but it's beyond us. We, I can't control it. You can't control it. God hasn't controlled it. And so they both knew. It says, Jonathan, he gave his artillery unto his lad and said unto him, Go, carry them to the city. In verse 41 it says, As soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south and fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times, and they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded. That means the weeping of David simply exceeded the weeping of Jonathan. Imagine that scene. Two men that love each other in a godly way so much that they know they can never be together in peace again. There is somebody between them that prevents them from ever enjoying communion like they enjoyed it before. I know exactly how these two men felt. Not to dredge up old history, but most in this church that were around in those times Fifteen or so years ago, our people went through a major upheaval of doctrinal differences. Satan entered into our churches, entered into the kingdom of God. Leading up to that time frame, there was amazing unity among the old Baptists, coast to coast. We were in a time that most people living had never seen. Churches were growing Ministers were traveling the globe. Churches were being established. People were being baptized. And Satan hated it. And you know what he did? He introduced false doctrine among essential brethren among the house of God. And all of a sudden there was a saw between the Jonathans and Davids of the old Baptists. And to this day, there are some Jonathans in my life that are on the other side of that. It went too far. The arrow was shot further than what we could overcome. And as much as I love them, and I do, and I long for the day of restoration, but I fear it's too far. And unless there's repentance on one side, it cannot occur. I know exactly what this man felt like. These two men felt like. We've lived it. Many of you lived it personally. Churches were divided. There were churches established out of other churches because the division was so strong. Family members 
were divided over this matter. Men that had been friends for decades, men that you thought could never be divided, were divided over those things. And let me say this, they were worth dividing over. False doctrine, heresy will destroy the house of God. And so I, not everything was always handled right in that whole time. There were things that were done wrong on both sides. But at the end of the day, separation had to occur. And it was a very, very sad and bitter time when friends and family and churches that had been like David and Jonathan, all of a sudden there was an arrow shot too far and there was a Saul in between. And those sides could not come back together in the same unity and communion we enjoyed before. I still, as I said, love many, many people that I can no longer sit together in full fellowship with. Some of them I still speak to regularly. Some of them I still am dear, dear friends with and I love dearly. And when I hear things are going on in their lives that are disastrous, I call to let them know and I mean it that my prayers are with them. And see, that was David and Jonathan. They couldn't help the Saul that was between them. What they could do is pray for one another, try in the moments they could to help one another. But they recognized this day that they will never be in the same situation they enjoyed before. And so again it says, they bowed themselves, they kissed one another, and wept one with another until David exceeded. And then Jonathan says to David, and this seems strange language, what Jonathan here is about to say. He says, go in peace. Wait a minute. <laughs> you just told me I can never come back to the palace. I can't come back to my wife. I can't come and see my brother-in-law. I can't come before my king. I can't go home to Bethlehem and see my fathers and brothers. I can't go see my mother anymore. And you're just telling me to go in peace? Jonathan, this is not a platitude for Jonathan. He's not saying, well, it's all going to be okay. You know, sometimes we say that, and we don't know if it's going to be okay or not. So what we ought to say is, the Lord be with you. And that's what Jonathan is saying. Go in peace. In other words, I know that God is going to take care of this. I know that God is going to take care of you, David. I don't know how it's all going to unfold. I don't know how it's all going to happen, but I know that God is going to take care of you. Now, David's life is going to be anything but peaceful for a long, long time. Uh, his time, uh, from the time he's anointed until the time he becomes king, is thought to be about 20 years. And a big portion of that time is going to be spent running and hiding in other nations and also in the wilderness, in forest, in the caves... A lot of that time is not going to be peaceful at all, at least in his outward circumstances. But there's going to be many psalms written during this time that shows that inwardly David had great calm. So here Jonathan says, you go in peace. For as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord be between me and thee and between my seed and thy seed. And he arose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. That seems like such a simple verse, but think about it. Jonathan goes back home. He goes to the comforts of what he knew. But David will not experience that for many more years. David is going to go to Nob and there to see the high priest. He's going to go to Gath in the land of the Philistines. He's going to flee from there and end up in the cave of Agilom. God's going to tell him, no, you go to Judah, to Harith in the forest. He's going to go all over the place. 
to escape the hand of Saul. So here Jonathan, he just goes back to the city. You know, Satan, when he comes, we don't know exactly what the effects are going to be. In the case of Jonathan, obviously he goes and mourns. I'm certain there was times of great mourning in his life, but he's able to return back to his life as it was. But David, he won't return to that life for many, many years. The only peace David will know is the peace that God will give him directly in his soul. As he said to Jonathan, he says, there's just a step between me and death. And that's going to be true until the death of Saul. Until Saul dies, he never knows any moment when he's going to run into Saul. And he did. Yet the providence of God would bless him every time. So as Jonathan says, you go in peace. Jonathan is speaking prophetically there that God is going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. And I say the same to this congregation today, that yes, Satan is going to come against us. The souls in our life may be giants. Uh, the tactics they use may confuse us. They may deceive us. They may have us so tricked we don't know which way to go. But just as we heard Brother Neil say this morning, there's moments in our lives we simply need to watch and we need to pray. We need to be still and know that he is God. Uh, then when he has shown us exactly what we're to do, we're to behave ourselves wisely, knowing that the Lord is with us. Walk in such a way that God will be pleased to walk with you, continue to pray for his wisdom, and when the enemy is advancing against you in a way you don't quite understand, you cannot quite uh, come to grips with it. Remember, there's one in heaven that always knows, and that his peace is a peace which passes understanding. I love that verse in 2 Corinthians 1 where the Apostle Paul says, We had the sentence of death in ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead. You know, Paul says, You know our trouble which came unto us in Asia. It's hard to know exactly what he's talking about there, but there, you can read the book of Acts. There were some great, great times of trouble for the life of Paul. But notice this time, Paul says, We had the sentence of death. In our, it's like somebody handed us our death warrant. So that's how we felt. We had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves. You know what, Paul? You're in just the right place. When you get to a point you cannot trust in yourself, that's right where you need to be. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. So here he says, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead. He says, and God did deliver us, and he doth deliver, and whom we trust he will yet deliver us. He said, he delivered us from so great a death, and he's continuing to deliver us, and he will. I promise you, as I've said last week, Satan's never going to stop until he's thrown into the lake of fire. But his day is coming where he's going to face the lake of fire. But until that day, while we're on this earth, we're going to have to deal with his devices and his methods until our dying breath. That's just the reality. There's going to be war again. And as soon as that one's over, just wait, there's going to be war again. And sometimes there's going to be saws that come into your life and the arrow is going to be shot too far. And the circumstance you enjoyed before, you'll never go back to. But that doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. It doesn't mean God has departed from you just means now God is going to bless you and watch over you maybe in a different way than you had in the past. And you're going to be in a different situation in a different place than you were before. But at the end of the day, here's what ultimately matters. The overriding providence of God that continues to help and sustain and support and the peace of God that comes and guides us. So our duty is simply this, 
to do as David did, behave yourself wisely and walk with the Lord. And in doing those two things, we'll be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. You will be able to hold up the shield of faith and the fiery darts of Satan shall be quenched. If you will simply do those two things, that means you've got to know the word of God and the will of God by reading it and applying it and then walking with the Lord. And in those two things, even though your circumstances may drastically change, you may not have the comfortable scenario you have right now. But if you still have food and raiment, according to the Apostle Paul, which David did, he says, let us therewith be content. We don't know what all is going to transpire. We don't know if our script and our purse will dry up. We don't know if the sword will be rusted and lost. But we do know this. The same God that's been faithful throughout the ages will be faithful to you no matter the circumstances of your life if you'll be faithful to him. Now when I say if there, that's obviously conditioned here in this time. But as far as our life with him and glory goes, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. May God bless you, sir.